one of the things that I've learned, and I'm, I wish I was better at it. I mean, I am trying. Is that you know, being right is overrated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's really overrated. Mm-hmm. Winning an argument, mm-hmm. overrated. Mm-hmm. Right? It's just at home. At home. Yeah. No, I mean, in my in the in the courtroom, it's vital. Much. All right, today's guest on the podcast is Andrew Grossman. Uh, Andrew is a good friend of mine. He's a lifelong friend. Our families are friends. I've been friends with he and his brother and, and known his parents and, and cousins and, and the whole crew for most of my life. So this was a, a, a treat and uh, a little bit of a different episode. In that, you know, I've known him my whole life. So we, you know, hop into his work, um, but we talk about, you know, how what led him to his work as always. Um, for those of you that don't know Andrew, Andrew Grossman is the principal and managing partner of Grossman Law Offices, Ohio's largest law firm practicing exclusively in the field of family law. Andrew has developed a statewide reputation for excellence in his ability to creatively and effectively handle the most complex cases in his field. When not working, Andrew can usually be found enjoying food and wine with family and friends in destinations near and far. So that I know that all to be very true, very true. And really what we're talking about is uh, divorce and marriage and family relationships. And I think it's a, a subject that's important for to, to get out there and isn't talked about enough. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I hope you find it to be informative and uh, a valuable conversation. So thank you. Well, we are here today on the Gravity Podcast with my good friend who, for the purpose of this show, I'm going to call Andrew Grossman. You're a good man. Andrew Grossman joins us today, and thanks for being here. This is exciting. I'm happy to have you. Thanks for having me. I I love the podcast, and and I'm happy to be here. Yes. Yeah, so uh, we were just chatting before. Uh, this is a little unique in that I have known you. Uh, we have known each other for most of our lives since we were little little children, and, and yeah. in some way, shape, or form, our families have been friends have to immediately shout out Matt, your brother, who's been a lifelong <laughs> lifelong friend. friend. Uh, yep. Yep. Who continues to be a, a great friend, brother, other cousins. I mean, we've got a lot of uh enmeshment in this in this journey. Yes, so, we do. Uh this makes this interview a little bit different than the, the normal. And, you know, to some degree it's different because I, I know your story. You know, we we typically, you know, are learning things about people going back to childhood that I have no idea. So in right. your case, not that I know everything, I, I know your journey, you know, pretty well. So this this yeah, makes this do. interview a little different, but I still want to, for the audience sake, sure. just give them some background and maybe just talk a little bit about, you know, kind of your upbringing and early days and, you know, things that were impactful. Well, for your local listeners, I have just a really remarkable upbringing, right? Born, raised, and continue to reside in Bexley, lifelong resident, except for uh, a good bit of traveling in college, but was back here for law school at Capitol, but grew up in a really 
warm, wonderful family in Bexley. I mean, you know all of my family members. We were extremely close with grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins. Uh, my brother and I, you know, actually my brother and I probably had the toughest relationship until, I say, until he grew up a little bit. But I think about the time I went to college and I didn't have to deal with him every day, all of a sudden we became friends. But, uh, but yeah, grew up uh, just a local Midwestern kid. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think there's... Uh, sometimes uh, a feeling and in, in we kind of talked about this a little bit before that maybe that's not that exciting or interesting or it's not some trauma filled childhood that, you know, you grew up this Midwestern kid with this really great family. And, and, and I think, you know, what I have found in doing a lot of these interviews is those stories are equally as important because people need to know that, not only is that possible, but there's something really profoundly impactful about having that kind of a life, right? There's no shame in that the fact that your parents did it right or yeah. that, you know, they prioritize family and that you were in the Midwest. You know, I think even as Midwesterners, sometimes we don't give enough credit to how great it is to be in the Midwest. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So, I mean, maybe you could just expand a little bit on what it was like to have a feeling of being surrounded by family and love and kind of the ease of being from Columbus, you know, in the Midwest. So, you know, it's interesting. I mean, because of my professional background, I have a really unique perspective on families today at 52 years old that I never had as a, a, you know, growing up mm -hmm. that I never, I never would have never even thought of it, mm -hmm. right? We weren't quite as enlightened sure. uh, in the 70s and 80s. But, you know, what, I, what I've learned looking back is, you know, you say, hey, you know, some of these stories are pretty normal and uh, just basic and unremarkable maybe in some way. And what I've learned is that boring is really good. Mm -hmm. You know, having uh, an uneventful period in your life can be really good. Yeah. Right. Sure. What you wish for. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, growing up was great. And I, as a divorce lawyer and dealing with families who are, are not doing so well and, and having done that for the last 26 or seven years, you know, I look back at my childhood and I realize I don't know whether I actually had it that good or whether my parents like, were they that great? Did they fake it really well? <laughs> what were they doing different than it seems like people are doing today? Mm -hmm. You know, now being a fully grown adult and having a great close relationship with my parents, I know that I'm sure there were days that they faked it, but I think that it was, you know, just a really true, loving, close relationship. I always used to say, like, they still seem like they're dating, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, as, as 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds mm -hmm. and 60-year-olds, mm -hmm. you know, some of, some of the ways that they would react uh, and act with each other as a kid, you kind of go, oh, come on, really? Yeah, right. And, and you know, it is an interesting thing because there's a lot there. I mean, you see so much today that has to really inform how you f see the world. Right. And, and I want to talk a lot about what you're doing today and that part specifically. But then, you know, there's this other piece, which is sometimes we look at our parents or people or life a certain way without really actually knowing the truth as to what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. But in your case, it sounds like you've had those conversations with your parents to really know what uh, it looked like was really what it was. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think for the most part, right? I mean, I'm sure there's still stuff that I don't know to this day, which is totally fine with me. Uh, (laughs) I don't need to know everything. But, you know, I think that today's world, I think just generally people tend to overshare. And I think that you see that with parents oversharing with their kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we grew up, there was more of a divide between parent and child, right? There was that sort of like that, that, you know, demilitarized zone, right? Mm -hmm. But that we just sort of didn't play in, right? Mm -hmm. And there was plenty of, of love and affection and communication and storytelling and sharing going back and forth. But there was definitely, you know, this divide where Mm -hmm. the grownups kept the adult stuff to the adults. Yeah. And I think in some families that worked really well. And I think that for some families that actually created a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. Like when you talk about like, you know, some people have this like sort of trauma filled upbringing and some have this sort of like, you know, without any of that trauma. I think that it's part of it is what's the level of communication between parents and children? How much are the parents sharing with the kids? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that you know, when kids see too much, know too much too soon, I don't think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. When kids know nothing, I don't think that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I found, you know, and just really kind of making it up as I go, you know, that it, it gets easier to share as you, you see your kids mature and that there's, you know, an opening to actually share. You kind of can tell, you can kind of feel into it and tell. But, but let me back up. A little bit, because I'm. For those that don't know, your father is also a, a lifelong career divorce lawyer, and I'm wondering how much of him being in that profession influenced how he was as a husband and father, right? So the fact that you grew up in this way, I mean, as you said, you see so much today that has you have a, a very unique perspective, right? Yeah. I mean, you can, you can see what's working, what's not working, you know, how people handle themselves, why they are the cer- a certain way. And I'm just curious, you know, if you've ever talked to your dad about how that influenced how he ended up being in his relationships. So, you know, my dad has had built a firm and a reputation as being, you know, the top divorce lawyer and certainly in town, one of the top divorce lawyers in town, one of the top divorce lawyers in the state, nationally recognized and all of that, and was a really like highly evolved practitioner, right? And the practice was way different when he started in the early to mid seventies than it is today. The law was, was a lot different, but I think that part of him sort of, part of what set him apart professionally was how he was able to learn uh, from the mistakes that he was witnessing, mm-hmm. from the things that he was witnessing with his clients, how he was able to learn from that and counsel people through those problems and how he, and I think that he, he had the ability to not bring work home except in the good way. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like when I, when I when growing up, I mean, I remember him telling funny stories about court or telling stories about other lawyers or a judge, but never any stories about what was going on in one of his cases or what somebody was going through. They, I mean, he really just kept that, you know, at the office Mm -hmm. and didn't really share that with us. But I think that what he did bring home was all of the knowledge that he accumulated over the years in watching marriages struggle, in watching parent-child relationships struggle. And I think that it made him a substantially better 
husband and father than he would have been if he had, you know, gone into the family recycling business sure, uh, sure. and not had that window into, into the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, and we'll come back to you because I think this is all intertwined, but do you know, I'm sure you do, why your father chose to go into family practice, divorce law in particular? You know, it, as you said, it's so different today. But one of the main differences is it's way more common. It's way more socially acceptable. I mean, when he got into it in the 70s, that was not the case. Not at all. And so I'm kind of curious, you know, what it was that that had him choose that path to begin with. It's a great question. I've definitely talked to him about it a lot. And, and I've gotten sort of different answers over the years as we've sort of revisited it, right? I mean, his memory just sort of changes. I think all, all of ours does, right, sure. over time, the things that sort of stick out. I mean, I think the way he got into it to begin with, he was hired by a, a, a great lawyer in town uh, named George Tyak. And he was a junior associate there. And his, you know, one of his first days in the office George Tyak handed him a file and said, you've got a divorce trial in 10 minutes. Yeah. Run so over there. Wasn't as like, you know, what, what, I, this is what I want to do. Not, not at all. Yeah, which makes total sense. I was actually watching the Golden Globes last night and the host, this comedian, made a joke about how like where he's from, you, you always take the money. Yeah. You know, you just, if they offer you the job, you take it. Right, you know? right. And so, you know, maybe when you're a young aspiring attorney and you get a job somewhere. I mean, even today, you take a job if you can get it and you do what you have to do. And if they say you've got a divorce case, next thing you know. That's what you're doing. Divorce attorney. And the law is famous for that, right? Law firms are famous for that. Mm -hmm. You know, the young guns come in, new kids come in, and the senior partner says, this is what you're doing today. Mm -hmm. And it might have been nothing that that you planned for. But I find it fascinating, though, because if you think about how, how random that that might seem, but to then end up not only spending his entire career in that lane, but then how that influences how he is as a father and husband and what that does for his children. And now to have you doing the same, pretty incredible that, you know, somebody hands you a file and then all of that ends up being impacted. I mean, that's, I guess that's what life's all about, right? Is an opportunity comes along and, and you take it and you don't know where it's going to go. Right. I mean, that it could have been a one and done for him. He could have gone over, done that case and, you know, done a terrible job. And George could have said, okay, we're not going to send you anymore. We're not going to send you to divorce court anymore. You're going to just do the criminal stuff. And he could have taken a different path. It's kind of don't know what is behind door number three. Sure. Yeah. Sliding doors. Yeah. Okay. So back to you. So, and, and actually maybe we should talk a little bit about your mom. And and she'd be very disappointed if we didn't. Yeah. So let's do that because most people know you and your dad. Like you said, you know, your dad was really well known in town, still is. And, you know, you practice together, had a radio show together, you know, newspaper column. You guys have been out there together. But your mom is obviously, you know, not even behind the scenes. You know, she's she's playing a really important role. And, you know, I guess what I want to get curious with you about is how you were as a kid, right? Which, you know, I know, but share with, you know, the audience what you were like as a kid and how your mom was influential in that time of your life. So it's the seventies and and, and eighties when I'm, when I'm growing up and it was a very traditional household. My dad was generally gone to the office by the time we woke up, maybe he woke us up uh, or was the first one to start waking us up. 
And then he'd come home about the time we had dinner. And so most of my time was with my mom, right? I mean, she ran, she ran the household. She ran the family. She was responsible for my brother and me. And she, I mean, she was kind of everything to us. I mean, she was in many ways, and, and it continues to this day, that, you know, that she's sort of the glue that, that held everything together. I mean, I think that she still plays that role in our family uh, today with my brother and me, with, with our children, mm-hmm. you know, with the extended family. You know, she's, she's just great. She's the best. Yeah, she is. And, and um, the glue, I think, is a great way to describe that. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about, you know, people that know you know you, I think, to be intelligent and successful and interested in a lot of things and, and articulate, um, involved in the community. But I know you back far enough. That wasn't always <laughs> who you were. Same true for me. There are a lot of years, you know, in, in high school in particular, where academics were not the focus. Parting other things, right, seemed to be way more important. And yet, you know, here you are. And so, you know, I'd like to just have you maybe share a little bit about kind of the pre-academic yeah. party part of your life and then what what changed for you or if in anywhere in that period of time were you thinking at all that the end result might end up you know being a lawyer i always looked up to my dad he was always sort of my you know my hero so there was always a part of me that wanted to be a lawyer when i was a kid and in high school and probably I'd say at least half of the way through college, I don't think I ever would have told you that I would have come into his practice and, and then wound up practicing law with him for you know, the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. What was not on the radar screen. I wanted to be like him, mm-hmm. uh, but I didn't necessarily want to be him and do what he did. I wanted to be like him in, in, in a lot of just sort of personal ways. Mm-hmm. But no, as a kid, I'd say that my focus was not squarely on academics for the lion's share of my academic career. Some might argue the entirety of my academic career. There's a guy here in town, and I'm certain you know him, Jeff Kaplan. Mm -hmm. Erie Chapman was running Riverside Hospital, and Jeff was his, you know, I don't know, his vice president. I don't remember what the title was. Mm -hmm. But Jeff, I think, started his life, professional life, in the admissions office, I think, at Yale. And Jeff did, on the side, some college counseling. And I needed some counseling. So my dad had met Jeff somehow and, and Jeff just sort of on the side for maybe one kid a year, maybe not even, would help kids with college counseling. And, and I definitely needed help getting into school because I had a particularly unremarkable academic career, Bexley, squarely in the middle of my class. I had great SAT scores. So I had the capability. I just didn't execute very well at all. And and Jeff said, you know, I think the only way I really wanted to go to Syracuse at, at, at the time. And mm-hmm. I, Jeff said, you know, the only way we're going to get you into Syracuse is we need to get you an interview. You're going to need to go there and interview. And so I went into the interview and the college counselor comes out. He's like the associate dean of admissions. And he comes out and he's just this big athletic guy and uh, kind of an imposing character. And he brings me into his office. He says, OK, I've read your essays. I've looked at your scores. I've looked at your transcript. I read your letters of recommendation. I only have one question for you at this interview. And that just scared the hell out of me, right? And he said, so uh, I see you're graduating from public high school with a 2.6. And I see you got a 1,400 on your SATs or whatever the number was. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, he said, so my one question for you is, did you fuck around in high school or cheat on the SATs? <laughs> and uh, I said, you know, there's no good, no good answer to that question, is there? He uh. says, nope. And so I said, well, then I'm going to have to go with honesty and say I fucked around in high school. Uh-huh. And that's, I mean, that's word for word what the interview was. Yeah. And then he just sat back. He said, okay, what questions do you have for me? And I wound up getting in. I didn't go, but I, w- I actually wound up getting in. And, yeah. you know, so Jeff was sort of just, just a great guy to, to help me sort sure. of start to see, yeah. oh, maybe there's a reason yeah. that, to try yeah. in school. I wound up going to the University of Kansas and I had just a lot of fun Mm -hmm. uh, my first year. So that didn't quite all sink in that I needed to work really hard. My sophomore year, though, you know, Kansas is is known for Jayhawk basketball and tornadoes. And uh, there was a tornado drill. It wasn't a drill. There was a massive tornado storm ripping through Lawrence. And there was an announcement over like the public address system says, you know, get it, take shelter immediately. And I'm walking back from class. So I ducked into this building I'd never gone into. And I went into the basement. And the basement was the study abroad office. And so you talk about like my dad getting the, yes, the yes. file from George. So I'm sitting in there and this storm lasted for hours. And we had no cell phones. I didn't have a Walkman with me. Uh, There's just like one old lady sitting in the study abroad office. There's nobody else there. And so she started talking to me about studying abroad. And I read every brochure and I took all the brochures home. And I, I got home, you know, back to the fraternity house a couple hours later and uh, talked to my parents that night. My mom had watched CNN and saw that there were storms. So I had nine voicemail messages. Uh, she was always looking out for me. And I, call, I called them and, and I'm talking to my dad that night. And I said, yeah, I think I'm going to go abroad next year. And which just stunned him because it had never even, it had never crossed my mind. And it certainly had never crossed my lip to say it. And so I gave him some ideas of some cool programs I saw. There was this marine biology program in Fiji. And he said, no. And I'm like, you know, I, I could go to, go to Australia. He's like, no. And I said, there seemed this really cool program in Oxford. Mm-hmm. And he said, that's what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. He said, I can get behind that. Mm-hmm. He says, find a program that is academically challenging. Mm-hmm. And so I, I applied. I got into this program. And, you know, again, no internet, not a lot of communication. Mm-hmm. We're leaving in August. In July, I get this thing in the mail at my parents' house. And it's roster of the kids that are going on the program and it was name hometown and university and i go down the university list and it's harvard yale princeton penn michigan stanford harvard four or five dartmouth kids and then there's this kid from ohio who goes to Kansas. And I'm thinking, I know these guys are thinking I'm showing up in overalls for the flight over, right? Right. And that is the moment that turned for me academically, Uh is being in an environment where I was with people who, we we were there, I mean, most of them were there to take a break from, you know, their really rigorous studies and have some fun and tour Europe. But they were really smart Mm -hmm. kids and they were really involved kids and they knew a hell of a lot more than I did about what was going on in the world. Mm -hmm. And so just hanging out with them every day, you know, I think some of that, some of that interest Mm -hmm. just sort of seeped through. Yeah. Cause I was curious, you know, when somebody isn't uh, performing at a high level academically, you know, oftentimes they end up telling themselves a story about how smart they are. You know, in your case, you get the high scores, SAT scores. I mean, internally, you're capable. I didn't know if you you always knew that or what it was that had you connect the dots that, you know, even when you said you didn't want to do what your dad did, 
you wanted to be your dad, you didn't see yourself doing what he did. I, I was wondering, is that because you didn't see yourself as somebody that could go to law school or was smart enough or any of that? Or it was just, you know, you weren't thinking about applying yourself that way at that time. To be honest, I think that I thought it was cool to not try. Yeah, sure. I mean, that is my high school and part of my college experience. Yeah was that it was cool to not try. Sure. I liked walking out of Bexley at the end of the day without a backpack. Yeah. You thought it was all cool. my Yeah. All yeah. my books were in my locker, yeah. right? And, and all I was doing was just, you know, screwing around. I don't even know sitting here today what 17-year-old me thought about my intellectual capabilities. Mm -hmm. I don't think I ever thought I'm not going to go into the law because I don't think I can go to law school or make it through law school that I don't think crossed my mind. Mm -hmm. I just don't really think that I, that I gave it a whole lot of thought. Yeah. Right. Because you were more focused on what was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Hanging out with friends, things that were fun. Yeah. And I just felt right. Uh, makes sense. Okay. So let, let's fast forward a little yeah. bit. You do end up and you know, the Oxford thing I know from being friends, you know, how impactful that was and how that was really a, a, a big shift for you still to this day. I mean, yeah. I know you think so fondly of that experience, which is amazing. You know, I think it's an important thing to highlight that, you know, when we sometimes really change it up, get way outside our comfort zone, do something that's, you know, literally, you know, in another part of the world, traveling in particular, yeah. you know, just how much that can impact you, change Absolutely. your life. And it did for you. So you end up going down this path. And, and once you flip that switch and you decided that you did want to go down this path, was it immediate that you wanted to go down the path of divorce law to go into practice with your father? Or was it just, hey, you know, I now need to focus on my academics and, and you started to kind of peel it back a little at a time? So I was definitely, there was a part of me that really wanted to practice law with my dad. I didn't have necessarily a burning desire to be a divorce lawyer um, when, I started, when I started out. And when I was looking at law schools, I was looking locally and I was looking nationally. And my dad said, well, if you're going to practice here, if you want to come into my practice, and he never pressured me to come in. He says, if that's something you want to do, because I'd mentioned it, he said, it makes better sense to go to law school here and start building a network and getting to know the legal system where you're going to practice, um, which made a lot of sense to me. So that's what I did. And I went to Capital Law School. And I think it was my, the summer after my first year, I got an internship with one of the great lawyers that Columbus has ever seen. His name is Frank Ray, and he's an, an amazing guy and a terrific lawyer. And he did class action lawsuit, product liability, personal injury, plaintiff's work. And so nothing like what my dad did. But my dad didn't offer me a job. He wanted me to go find something somewhere else and see what I was interested in. And, you know, probably after working for Frank for about a year and a half, I realized, you know, that wasn't probably the kind of practice that I wanted to be in. And having spent more and more time with my dad, you know, to walk from law school to my apartment, I had to pass his office. So I had to pass his office. So I'd stop in every day. Mm -hmm. And after being around there and being with the guys and, and, and people that were there, I just realized that's, that's where I want to be. Yeah. 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 So, and you've been in practice with him now for how many years? So I've been practicing since 1996. So okay. yeah. Um, so, so let's talk about what you do. And what I'm curious about is 
Boy, there's a lot there. You know, you, you had mentioned how much you learn about people, about life, about relationships, about um, what people are bringing to all of that. You know, how much of that comes from childhood or other things that are, you know, very similar to what we typically unpack here on the podcast. You have, in many ways, you know, a real intimate front row seat to people's lives. I mean, you you probably see stuff that very few other people in your client's life see, right? They, yeah. they probably share with you some of their deepest, darkest secrets, right? You really are seeing uh, humanity at a, at a pretty deep level over and over again every day. So yeah. I just kind of, I, maybe I'll just leave it there, you know, just for a second and just let you respond to that, you know, maybe just give us some insight on what it's like to do what you do from that perspective. So it's interesting, you know, we, we talked about my upbringing and it being nice Midwestern trauma-free. Uh, my first day as a divorce lawyer is when I realized how sheltered I was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because the people that walk into your office when you, when you do what I do are sharing the most intimate details of their life mm-hmm. within 30 seconds of meeting you. Yeah. It's a very weird, unnatural thing. I mean, you spend a lot of time on this podcast, like, you know, really extracting a lot of information from people. And I have to do that in an initial consultation. And, but it's so personal, mm-hmm. right? It's so personal. And it's the things that they don't tell their friends, they don't tell their family members. It's maybe me and their therapist, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, I, the first couple of years in practice, I think I was a little bit shell shocked at how terrible people can be to each other because I had seen none of that in real life mm-hmm. in my upbringing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a, it was a jolt because, and look, it's not that every divorce is, you know, what you see on in the movies, right? It's not that every divorce is trauma-filled. Yeah, Yeah, it's not. Most of them aren't, to be honest. But you hear these things, you know, with the people that walk walk through your door, who are people who are really struggling, people whose families are falling apart, their marriage is falling apart, and they're sharing all of this information with you. And for a pretty sheltered kid who lived in a really warm, loving household with an intact family, it was it was sort of like what what's happening, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I th- so so I, I get that. I could see how that was, you know, a real eye opener for you. And maybe you just elaborate on, you know, what was happening or or what happens, you know, when when people are at that point. I mean, and I know it's it's a lot of things, right? It's not the same for everybody. But you know, if you had to kind of, you know, boil it down to a, a handful of things. What happens, you know, generally speaking, that have people end up at that place in life? I mean, and, and I, I listen. I, I, my parents were divorced. I'm not a, I'm not a stranger to it. I understand to some degree, but I'm trying to pull back the curtain a little bit and really, yeah. get, you know, your understanding from the perspective that you have. Yeah. So I think the common denominator, generally, with with divorces, boils down to communication or a lack of communication. I mean, that's really, so people love to 
you know, talk to me at parties when they, you know, know what I do and they want to hear stories. I mean, it's, you know, it's mm -hmm. kind of like that. It's like looking at the gossip pages, right? The question I'm probably asked the most is, all right, what's the main reason people get divorced? Is it, is it an affair? Mm -hmm. and, and, and I always say, you know, that's probably never the reason that someone gets divorced mm -hmm. because an affair is a symptom of a problem because no happily married person goes out and has an affair. Mm -hmm. I mean, could you have an indiscretion if you were happily married? I suppose so. But, mm -hmm. but nobody, nobody, you know, steps outside of their marriage, you know, gets involved with somebody else when they are happy at home. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't happen. Sure. And so I think that, that, you know, whether it's, you know, when you hear people say, oh, we just grew apart. What is growing apart? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think really that boils down to a failure to communicate mm. along the way, mm -hmm. right? I mean, people can take, there's no question that a couple can grow apart, take different paths. Mm -hmm. I mean, interests change. Mm -hmm. You know, you talk about like those opportunities, you know, the tornado, and then that changed my mm -hmm. stuff, the file with my dad. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I really believe that if, if a couple is, committed to working on communication and actively working on communication and communicating truthfully with each other. I think that you probably don't wind up in my office. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And what I'm imagining is, you know, a lot of, a lot of people don't understand that's what's going on, right? So they come in with a story and it's so-and-so had an affair or, you know, she's this, he's that, you know, mm -hmm. they have a lot of attachments to what they think is happening. And, and, and so when that's going on, and I mean, I don't know, is that common? Is that, is that generally what people are doing when they get to you? Yeah. You know, one of the things, I'm sure I have past clients and probably some current clients who are going to be mad at me for, for saying this, but when people come into my office and say, you know, I had no idea uh -huh. this came out of the blue. Yeah. The first thing I think is, what bullshit? Yeah. I mean, that's, you're not, your eyes are not open. Yeah, but when you say bullshit, they're bullshitting themselves. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, there are always signs. Yeah. They're always there. Mm -hmm. It's just, are you paying attention to them? Mm -hmm. and, and so when you bring that back to communication, so th that's where you're saying the breakdown in the communication is, is that there's signs, you know, something's off, not right. And, and you're not talking about it. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, listen, what do we, what do we do every day? Right. We, we get up, we go to work, we take care of our kids, we mm -hmm. get them off to school. We make sure that, you know, everybody makes their appointments. We make sure that, you know, everything is taken care of. We're paying our bills fixing something that broke at the house. I mean, right. you know, just everyday life. Right. And at the end of most days, most people are just tired. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's easy to just, at the end of the day, sit down and want to look at a screen or get involved in a book and just shut the outside world out because mm -hmm. I've just dealt with stuff all day long. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. uh, it's actually something I really have, have struggled with and have really had to, to be really aware of in my own, in my personal life. Mm -hmm. I spend all day long talking about other people's problems, addressing other people's problems and trying to solve other people's problems. The first thing I want to talk about when I walk home is probably not a problem mm -hmm. at home. 
but we all have problems at home that we have to address. Mm -hmm. So you have to be really, you have to really be aware. You have to really be, you have to try. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know from my own experience, I think, you know, what happens is it's a bit of like dealing with an acute pain versus chronic pain, right? Like the, in the moment, addressing the problem feels like it's painful or not something you have the energy to do or you've been busy all day and it's the last thing you want to do now is, you know, but if you don't, it turns into a chronic pain and that's way worse. Way worse. Right? And that is, I think, how relationships fall apart. You know, I think you're right that, you know, you have to, if you listen to like the Gottmans bubble up the conflict, you've got, they say that the couples that stay together are the ones that argue the most, actually, because they're at least talking about stuff. Sure. Yeah. So I get that. I mean, there's a layer under that and, you know, maybe this is, I don't know, not in your wheelhouse. I don't know, but I'm imagining Try me. you have a perspective on it for sure. And that like, it's like, well, why is that the case then? Uh, you know, James Clear in, in Atomic Habits talks about, and Katie was actually just talking to me about this, that, that if you look at how you spend your time, you can look at where your priorities are, right? So why is it then that we, uh, we are so tired that we can't actually address the things that should be most important to us? Yeah, you might be out of my wheelhouse, right? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I might be a little over my skis on this one. I don't know why, why that is. What what's went through my head, and I don't know that it's a, a real direct answer to this, to what you posed, okay. but, but what went through my head was, you know what I think has changed a lot? You talked about like how divorce when I was growing up was not nowhere near as common or as accepted as it is today. Yeah. You know what I think has changed a lot is the focus of the couple. I think that couples today are so uh, singularly focused on their kids Mm. putting their kids first, mm-hmm. that they don't tend to the relationship. Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, back when I was growing up, I don't remember whether it was Friday night or Saturday night, whichever night the Love Boat and Fantasy Island was on, yeah. right? Every single week, my parents were out. Yeah. They were out with themselves. They were out with other couples. Yeah. Right? They were always, they always took time for themselves. Yeah. And, you know, you didn't have the travel soccer and the travel basketball right, and right. the travel tennis and all, all that kind of stuff that, right. that we're all doing with our kids or a lot of people are doing with their kids. Yeah. And, and I just think that we, we focus a little too much on our kids. If our kids are a bigger priority than our marriage, then it's the marriage that's, that's going to start to fall apart. Mm-hmm. And what happens when a marriage falls apart? There's fallout on the, for the kids. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So by by spending all of our time focusing on our kids, uh, to the detriment of our relationship, mm-hmm. when these relationships fall apart, we wind up not having done our kids such a favor. Yeah, yeah. And you know, we were talking about this a little bit before, just how uh, certain things become a little bit more accepted. That's a very interesting point, by the way. I think you're right. In fact, I'm referencing the Gottmans because I, Katie, and I both just read this book, and we can put. Uh, links in the show notes, but it's, I'll butcher the title, but basically it's like seven days of kind of tiny habits that you can, uh, exercises that you can do as a couple. And their whole theory is that it's really small stuff, that, that it's not some big thing that you have to fix. They don't even want to hear 
what your big issues are with the with your spouse. They want you to just focus on doing a few tiny things, one a day for seven days. Mm-hmm. One of them is a date night. Mm-hmm. And they say that the number one thing that makes the most impact in a relationship is taking a date night and a night where you don't have your screens on and they say it's not supposed to end in sex. There's, it's not, there's no expectation. Right. It's just about connecting and right. talking and being together and how important that is. And I think you're right. We easily get away from that because we're so busy. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so let's talk about today and, and, and how much divorce has changed in your career. I mean, certainly going back to when my parents were divorced, you know, I can remember uh, my parents got divorced, I think in 1985, I was 10 years old and it was like a big deal, right? Like, and it was like, not just a big deal. It was like, wow, like a sort of a big, you know, stush in the community, like like a black mark on your, you know, record that you've been divorced. Right. And boy, things have changed so much. I mean, now it it almost seems like maybe it's become too easy or too acceptable. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it just seems like it's changed so much, even in the last, you know, maybe 10 years. I think it has changed in the last, I think it has changed in the last 10 years. And it's definitely changed over the 26 that I've been practicing. I mean, what, uh, what my day looked like what I dealt with 26 years ago on a daily basis and today are, are vastly different things. I have several fairly strong thoughts on this. Okay. Number one, I think that we live in a bit of a throwaway society, mm-hmm. right? Everything is disposable. Everything is replaceable. The new iPhone comes out. My old iPhone is pretty much the same phone. Mm-hmm. And it works. Yeah. But I'm getting the new iPhone. If you don't uh, like the... Instagram picture, swipe to the next one. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's it's so easy to just move on that there was this probably, I don't know if it was maybe half a dozen years ago or so. I remember reading an article. There were actually several articles that were coming out and they were talking about the starter marriage. Mm-hmm. But there were a lot of people that were like getting married young and they really weren't necessarily thinking that it was a forever kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And they gave it a shot, you know, and then, okay, now I'm going to go on to the next one. And, and I just think that people are so used to being able to replace. It's so easy to give up. Mm-hmm. And because it has become, there's not that black mark, right? I mean, yeah, people still talk in the community and mm-hmm. yeah, you know, you're a topic of conversation for, mm-hmm. you know, one round of social parties and then it's somebody's on to the next, right. the next thing that they're talking about in the community. So, but I I think that because it's more common and it's more accepted and it's not that black mark that, you know, there's really, there's sort of less of a barrier. We talk about barriers to entry, a Mm -hmm. barrier to exit, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. less of a barrier to exit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think to some extent that's not all bad, right? In that there seems to be, at least like the changes aren't all bad. It, there seems to be a lot more of a, a roadmap, a blueprint on how to do divorce civilly, kindly, respectfully. If you do get to that point, you know, we see a lot of friends of ours that are divorced that are uh, wonderful co-parents, 
that are happier, you know, in their new lives than they were when they were married. And consequently, they have a better relationship than they did. You know, it, it does seem like, to some extent, the kind of dynamic has changed in that there's an option that has it not being ugly and that it can sometimes, you know, just not be something that was meant to be forever and that can be okay. You see that too? I definitely see that. And contrary to uh, a marriage story. Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, so. Adam Driver. Yeah. Yeah. Great movie. Yeah. Great movie. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like there was like the ball buster lawyer and, yeah. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. and Alan Alda was the, you know, right. nice, calm, easy going guy, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, the sort of general image of what a divorce lawyer is yeah. really far afield from what most of us are doing mm -hmm. every day. Mm -hmm. Most of the divorce lawyers that I know that I practice with and against every day are genuinely committed to removing barriers and obstacles to eliminating things to fight about, mm -hmm. to resolving things peacefully. Mm -hmm. And it matters a great deal when you're divorcing with younger kids mm -hmm. that still have some raising to, to be done, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I, because not every relationship is, is built to last. Yeah. Not every marriage is going to make it. Yeah. Some marriages are, you're, are better off ending, mm -hmm. right? We didn't know that when we said, I do maybe, but after a while, mm -hmm. so, some relationships, they run their course and, and it's best to end it. And if you've got kids that you're raising, you know, how do we avoid the, as much of the fallout? Mm -hmm. You know, there was a psychologist in, I think, the 70s did a study, Judith Wallerstein. I don't know if you've ever, I know you, no. you dig deep, but yeah, I don't know yeah, if you've no, dug no, that. I don't know no, if you've dug that deep yet. That deep. And I think that, you know, she did this study a long time ago. And the grand conclusion of the study was stay married for the benefit of the kids, which was very much a 70s sure. mentality. Sure. And then her students who were, involved in the sample groups, went, got together, went back, found the kids of the sample groups and said, so what was that like? And resoundingly, the conclusion was the opposite of mm -hmm. the conclusion from the 70s, mm -hmm. which is that's the worst reason mm -hmm. to stay married mm -hmm. just for the kids. Mm -hmm. Because if the relationship's not good, I mean, we kids learn how to have intimate relationships from watching their parents mm -hmm. primarily. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you know, having been a child of divorce and seeing how that's played out in my own family. In fact, speaking of movies, Katie and I just went to see The Whale, uh, Brendan yeah. Fraser, The Whale, and, and, it, and it rocked me. It really hit me very hard in that there was some uh, interesting family dynamics. So, you know, a divorce family and, you know, seeing kind of the dynamic, at least, you know, maybe this is, was more true when I was a kid, where the parents are far from on the same page and how that can actually impact the kid. There's no doubt that sometimes divorce by itself can be incredibly hurtful, harmful to children. Now, sure. also no doubt that role modeling a unhappy, no intimacy, bad communication, or worse relationship could be equally or more harmful to the kid. So, you know, one of the questions I have for you is, I wonder sometimes, you know, how many people, to your kind of first point, just 
bail too early, right? Like, how do you know from your experience? Do you see, can you tell the difference when somebody is like, I'm on to the next thing, this thing's too big of a pain in the ass, or when they're just not willing to do the work? And if they would do the work, getting to the other side, keeping the family together could actually really be a way better outcome. There's no question that, that those exist, the people that bail too early that just aren't willing to put in the work, mm-hmm. that if they had, they probably would have been success, successful. And yeah, I can identify those some of the time mm-hmm. at the initial consultation. Mm-hmm. If, right away, you can see Right it. away. Here's my sort of initial benchmark. If you're in my office and you haven't been in a marriage counselor's office, you're not, you haven't done the work. You haven't tried. Yeah. Yeah. You haven't tried. Yeah. So, you know, I've got great relationships with a bunch of marriage counselors yeah. in town. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I learned from my dad, I mean, you know, he's a really sort of good, moral, ethical guy, mm-hmm. person, just a good person. And, you know, he instilled a lot of that in us, uh, my mom, the same way. But the only people that I've ever, I don't like to use the word encouraged, but let's say encouraged to get divorced are people who are in abusive relationships where they're at risk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For everybody else, I say your first step ought to be a marriage counselor, Mm -hmm. not an initial consultation with a divorce lawyer. Mm -hmm. Some people come in, they just want to get a lay of the land. They want to know, you know, What's this going to cost? What does it look like? What's going to happen to the kids? Is it true what I heard? You know, my neighbor who got divorced, you know, only sees his kids every Thursday and I don't want to do that. And, you know, so they, so some people are just fact finding and it's probably better to fact find in my office than online because there's a ton of misinformation out there. But, but yeah, I mean, if you're coming to me and you haven't gone to counseling and I'm not talking about two appointments. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, like actually, really, actually trying an effort. Yeah. Actually putting in an effort. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And and this is just sort of curiosity, but I'm wondering how many of those people that you send to counseling uh, as a first step come back if they really do the work. So it's a little hard to know because it's hard to know why somebody didn't come back. Okay. Okay. Like, did yeah. they stay to get? Like, I, I don't really do right, a whole lot of out. People don't want to hear right, from yeah. me, you know, <laughs> after the fact, right? So, especially so, at your rate. Exactly. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but yeah, I mean, I had a conversation with a, a marriage counselor here in town, somebody that I know that you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I had sent a bunch of clients or potential clients to him mm-hmm. and uh, for marriage counseling. And he called me one day and he said, you know, I just, I want to thank you. You know, so-and-so came in and, you know, you've, you've been unbelievable, you know, for my practice, like referring so many people to me. I just want you to know how much I appreciate it. And I jokingly said to him, I go, you know, you could have maybe a worst success rate, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, send the, some back, the, send yeah. some back yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. so yes, the answer is yes. If yeah. people, I mean, if people are committed to trying, yeah, yeah. like, of course you can make it work. Yeah. I think, you know, what I've heard relative to other similar things in like the addiction world, they say, get sober and then you can decide. Yeah. Right. Like if that's the problem. Right. And so it's like, do the work 
and then you can decide. Fair. Right. And and I, I guess I was I was gonna ask you earlier, I was thinking how many people end up in second marriages or third marriages just repeating the same shit because they're not actually doing the work on themselves. The advice that I have received over the years, which I hated the most, which was absolutely the best advice, is you can really only work on yourself. Yes, you know, you have to work on your relationship. But at the end of the day, the work that you can control is the work that you do on yourself. That's true. And so I'm wondering, you know, how much of that ends up putting people in a new relationship with the same problems. I don't know what the actual statistics are on the failure rate of second marriages. I'd be surprised if it wasn't higher. The failure rate Mm -hmm. wasn't higher Mm -hmm. in a second marriage than a first marriage. I think that there are a lot of people who don't do the work, who don't change, who just think, well, he was the problem or she was the problem. Mm -hmm. And now I'm going to find somebody who doesn't have that problem. And oh, then some of the same problems are coming up. Mm-hmm. How didn't I see that in him or her, mm-hmm. number two? How didn't I see that when we got together? And maybe the answer is you need to stop looking across the table yeah. and start looking in the mirror. And so, you know, I've had a number of clients who I've represented multiple times. Mm-hmm. And the first one that I represented for the third time when he said, you know, shouldn't I get a repeat client discount? <laughs> I said, no, there should be a surcharge. Mm-hmm. Because you haven't learned anything. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Okay, so let's talk about just, you know, circle back around to what you've learned. You know, the communication. How does all that you have learned really impact you as uh, you go about your life? You know, you see so much. Again, just kind of like, I don't know, underscore it or double click on it. You know, like the bottom line on what you've taken away from having this front row seat to humanity. I want to just repeat the communication component, but there's more. There's definitely more to it. I don't know that there's a bottom line. I mean, I think that the communication piece is the bottom line, right? Mm -hmm. It's sort of the common denominator Mm -hmm. in all of this. You know, what I have learned, like I've just been, I've had a front row seat to watching and dissecting a lot of mistakes mm-hmm. that people have made. I'm, with this front row seat, I'm able to recognize pretty clearly a lot of mistakes that, that people make mm-hmm. over and over. Hopefully, I'm doing a reasonably good job at not making those mistakes at home. Mm-hmm. I know I'm not anywhere near 100%. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know I'm not. Yeah. And there are things that happen in, you know, my daily life, my home life, where I think to myself after a discussion, a disagreement, whatever, I think to myself like, man, how did you let that happen? Mm -hmm. How did you get sucked into that? Like, you've watched so many people make the same mistake. You know, Mm -hmm. one of the things that I've learned, and I wish I was better at it, I mean, I am trying, is that, you know, being right is overrated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's really overrated. Mm-hmm. Winning an argument, mm-hmm. overrated. Mm-hmm. Right? It's just at home. At home. Yeah. No, I mean, in my in the courtroom, it's vital. Yeah. 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 No, in your home life, you, yeah. in your home life with yeah. the people that you love. Yeah. Winning an argument. Yeah. Not really even a thing. Not a thing. Yeah. Not a thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's great. Boy, I'm sure there's a lot more we could unpack and and talk about. It's fascinating, you know. I think that uh, sometimes people look at divorce and lawyers, law, you know, as sort of black and white, and it's just not. Because really, what you're talking about, I mean, even as you honestly share about, you know, how you're imperfect and how you know all these things, but we still find ourselves making some of the mistakes, hopefully less of them, but making mistakes. It's because we're all human beings mm-hmm. and we're all bringing, I mean, I, I think the answer to the question of why is it that we don't do the things? Why don't we prioritize? Why is it we're so busy? It's, it's because of everything that happened before it and everything that's happening around us. Yeah. Right? There's a conditioning that happens at birth and you can have unbelievable unconditional love you know really wonderful childhood upbringing and still society can knock you around and tell you what matters and what's important and you know money or status or things or experiences even if it's well intended can take you away from maybe you know what you know you should do or what deep down is most important and we just get off track. And, you know, hopefully we don't get too far off track, but I guess, you know, maybe that's the gig is, is trying to, you know, keep coming back. I guess the key to, you know, avoiding divorce is I don't think you have to stay on track the whole time, but you gotta, you gotta be like within shouting distance of the track, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like you can't veer that far off course. Yeah. Cause it's really hard uh, to get back. Cause then, then it's really hard to find your way back. Yeah. But there's there's no marriage in the history of marriage that has stayed on track from I do to death. Right, right. It's not a thing. Especially as we live a lot longer and... Sure. Right, you know. Yeah. Well, there was a, you know, a, a child of the 80s and there was this line in St. Elmo's Fire that says, you know, marriage was invented to, by people who were lucky to make it to 20 without being eaten by dinosaurs. <laughs> marriage is obsolete. And the guy responds, dinosaurs are obsolete. Marriage is still around. (laughs) Yeah, Um, that's great. Well, it wouldn't have been a a successful podcast if you didn't quote St. Elmo's Fire. So I'm glad we got it. It's one of my weaknesses. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Depends on how you look at it. You know, I think it's a strength. So Uh, anyway, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Any final thoughts, anything else you want to share? We'll make sure people know how to find you. Not that you're looking for work. Yeah. No, I, you know, I, I appreciate, I appreciate, appreciate you having me on. It's nice to be able to talk about what I do sort of outside of actually doing it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I spend all my time doing what I right. do and less time than I probably should reflecting on what I do. So it's a sort of a good, like personal and professional gut check to come yeah. in and, and have a conversation like this. Yeah. Good. Well, yeah. it's been fun. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.